0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Door, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're really honored to have Professor Tencent Sen and Dr. Brian Tsui on the show to talk about their new edit volume, Beyond Pan-Nationism, Connecting China in India, 1840s to 1960s. Published by the Oxford University Press in 2021. Professor Sen and Dr. Tui, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: It's so nice to have you. It's such a pleasure. Um, I wonder if we can begin the interview with some self introductions. Um, please say a few words about yourselves and how you became interested in East Asian studies and particularly in India China connections.
2: Uh, so I'll go first. This is Tansen. Um, so I, I was uh, in China when I was 14. I came uh, here with uh, my parents. Uh, I'm now based in, in Shanghai. That's where I'm saying uh, here. Um, and I started uh, my studies in Chinese language and literature right away, uh, going to college uh, and then doing my master's. Um, Uh, at at Peking University, and it's at Peking University that I got interested in in China-India connections. Uh, I worked uh, mostly on the Tang and Song dynasties, looking at uh, trading and and Buddhist connections between the two regions, and then I went to University of Pennsylvania uh, and did my PhD also on China-India connections, uh, again on the Tang and Song dynasties. Uh, and uh, since then I've been focusing on different periods and different aspects of China-India connections uh, and uh, this book uh, that we are going to talk about is mostly about modern uh, to contemporary periods uh, so that's how I've extended f- beyond uh, the Tang and Song dynasties. Uh, I used to be at the City University of New York in New York. Uh, in 2017 I joined NYU Shanghai. Uh, I teach mostly China-related courses here. Uh, And I also head uh, a Center for Global Asia that looks at uh, Asia more broadly. Um, And some of the methods of doing Asia uh, comes across in the book that we are going to talk about.
1: Thank you, Professor. And uh, Dr. Tui?
0: Hi, I'm Brian. I teach at the Department of Chinese Culture at the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Um, So I Grew in Hong Kong, uh, being immersed in sort of Chinese nationalist propaganda. I mean, the nationalist being the Kuomintang, because one of my grandparents uh, was an ardent supporter of uh, of the Kuomintang. So he threw me uh, uh, sort of this uh, Kuomintang books when I was like in my teens. So I became very interested in uh, modern Chinese history, um, and that's. Uh, that's what I studied when I was an undergraduate and was a graduate student at Columbia University. Um, I uh, became interested in China India uh, connections when I was uh, looking for a topic for my PhD dissertation, uh, which eventually became uh, my first book uh, China's Conservative Revolution uh, The Quest for a New Order to th- uh, 19- uh, 1927 1949, which came out. Uh, with uh, Cambridge University Press in 2018. Uh, so uh, the guy I was, uh, was looking at was uh, Daji Tao, who uh, was one of the few uh, Buddhists with, with uh, the Kuomintang the administration. And he took charge of uh, these sort of Pan-Nationalist activities that uh, the Kuomintang undertook, uh, which brought him to India. Um, and his connections with the Indian Nationalist National Congress. And uh, that's how I became interested in uh, modern India-China connections.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that's a really fascinating book. Um, I highly recommend our readers to, um, to go and check it out, too. Um, So this edit volume, Beyond Pan-Nationism, is actually a really welcomed addition to the growing scholarship on the connection between India and China, especially in the um, late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, So how did this collaborative project of Beyond Pan-Nationism begin?
2: Well, um, Brian, do you remember when was the first time we started talking about this project?
0: Probably 2012 when I was finishing my PhD. <laughs> yeah,
2: so Brian was at Columbia and uh, I was at uh, at CUNY in New York, both of us. Uh, and we started uh, talking about uh, interests that overlapped. Uh, and one of the issues we quickly discovered was those uh, you know, various archives, uh, especially in Taiwan and, and India, that people really did not focus on to study China-India connections um, during the late 19th century to 20th century. Uh, And that's when we decided to do something about it, to look at uh, archives, but also focus on the period. Uh, So we thought the period after the Opium Wars uh, was not uh, properly examined with regard to China-India connections. Um, And then we also quickly realized that uh, the two of us could not do it by ourselves because this seemed to be a huge project. So we thought from the very early on that this project would be a collaborative project. uh, And that's how we started approaching people uh, who were interested in um, this time period and also China-India connections. Uh, So we gathered a group of five, six people from different parts of the world. Uh, There were people from the U.S., certainly uh, China and India. Uh, And the idea then was to apply for a grant uh, to fund the research. uh, And we applied and fortunately got the funding from the Changcheng Foundation in Taiwan. Uh, And that allowed us uh, not only to meet uh, regularly among the collaborators, Uh, who are also the collaborators to the volume that we are going to talk about. Uh, But also go to these various archives in uh, India, China, um, uh, mainland and Taiwan, and also uh, uh, United Kingdom where uh, there's a lot of material from the British uh, Library. Um, So we met uh, in different locations and perhaps uh, Brian could talk about those locations uh, because he was the first uh, to organize. Uh, the first meeting um, in, in Australia, Ryan, you want to talk about uh, our meeting in Australia?
0: Well so the, um, the project began when I was an, uh, a postdoctoral fellow at uh, the China, Australian China uh, at the Australian National University. So we first met there. Uh, we gathered together um, a few scholars, um, some of whom uh, eventually contributed to this uh, volume. Um, we uh, met uh, again uh, for a few times uh, in Hong Kong and also in Shanghai, sort of to uh, sort of to hammer out uh, the themes and uh, topics that each of us would work on. We eventually, decided that uh, be the group that began the project was uh, mostly consisted of historians, uh, but then the, uh, the the group itself, the volume itself, as you can see. Um, really covers a a few other disciplines as well.
2: Yeah, and uh, let me also add that uh, we brought in uh, other people who were also interested in this period but also looking at new sources of studies. So one of the key contributions uh, of this volume, uh, I think, uh, are the various kinds of sources that people have not necessarily used or if they have used Uh, then we were looking at those sources from a different perspective. So uh, one thing that we realized quickly was that there were certain issues that was missing, but uh, that's something that we can't uh, cover everything It was the problem. Uh, But but I think we have done a comprehensive work uh, and covered a lot of not only aspects but also disciplines uh, as we did uh, from literature to Buddhism. Uh, to um, uh, political uh, relations as well.
1: Thank you. Yeah, um, so we're going to talk about the methods um, that this edited volume takes in um, a later question. But before going into beyond Pan nationism, it's perhaps um, you know beneficial to first talk about um, Pan nationism. So, what um, were some of the key figures and organizations that fostered these ideas of? Pan-Asianist solidarities, um, especially that entangled India and China together in the colonial and early post-colonial eras. What were some of the goals and results of these Pan-Asianist visions?
0: So uh, in the narrow sense, Pan-Asianism began with the Japanese art historian uh, Ten Sen. Uh, he argued that Asia, specifically India, China, and Japan belonged to one civilization, and Japan being the first to modernize and home to the sort of finest Asian traditions should assist this particular Asia to confront the West. So uh, Pan-Asianism had been evoked by uh, politicians outside of Japan when they appealed for collab- cooperation uh, Most notably, Yat uh, Sen's 1924 speech in Kobe, uh, but this tradition was uh, tarnished uh, by his association with uh, Japanese invasion of the continent that accumulated in what was known then as the East Asia War in the 1940s, the stated aim of which was to liberate Asia from Western imperialism. Uh, but pan-nationalism in this volume takes on broader meanings because of its inherent uh, ambiguities. Panationism could be part of or inspire both conservative and progressive politics. Um, so in this volume in particular, uh, um, uh, Zhang Haiyan uh, was a Chinese revolutionary who uh, held pan-nationalist and anti-colonialist uh, uh, sympathies. Uh, he participated in the Short-lived uh, Asia, so, so, so Asia Solidarity Association in Tokyo. Um, uh, Tagore, which also uh, for, uh, features very much in this uh, volume. Um, um, saw pan nationism mostly in sort of idealist, culturalist terms that counter the savagery of modern capitalism. Um, and of course, uh, pan nationism also fed into wider uh, third world solidarities, the most iconic expression of which uh, was the uh, Bandung Conference in 1955, in which uh, Nauru uh, and Joe and I played uh, very interesting roles. Um, so uh, in this volume, we try to explore Pan-Asianism in its many uh, fold and sometimes uh, contradictory manifestations.
1: Thank you. And then going back to the title of the book, then um, a central argument that really emerges from this volume is that, uh, quotes Pan-Asianism informs but does not necessarily define or exhaust stories of China-Indian interactions, unquote. Um, so please tell us more about this point. What are some of the ways in which the scholars in this volume kind of move beyond pan asianist pyramids to reveal um, fresh perspectives and multidimensional perspectives of India-China relations?
2: Yeah. Um. So when we applied for the grant, we had this idea of going beyond Panationism. um, and uh, the the reason for that was uh, uh, that we wanted uh, not only to look at the intellectuals who were participating in this this discourse that Brian just pointed out. Uh, But others who were part of uh, India-China connections uh, who are not necessarily intellectuals, but businessmen, traders, uh, uh, but also migrant communities. Uh, So the idea was to not only talk about the elite of China-India connections, but also the subaltern uh, of of China-India connections. So I would just add that when uh, the manuscript was going through the peer review, Uh, One of the reviewers suggested that we change the title and not use Beyond Pan-Asianism. But uh, Brian and I insisted that uh, that was the core reason we had that title, was to move beyond this uh, established idea of Pan-Asianism, which in many ways dictated how China and India Connections were, were studied, um, and, and as Brian was also pointing out, uh, Bandung was another stage uh, uh, after decolonization when pan Asianism was uh, reinvoked, uh, and pan Asianism comes back again in the eighties uh, as well, uh, in in the study of China India connections and uh, beyond uh, what Okakura had done. Uh, it became a way of looking at China-India relations by contemporary scholars. So one way we wanted to move beyond Pan-Nationism was to also set a new method of looking at China-India connections that went beyond what is called uh, the friendly connections between China and India, starting from Tagore's visit uh, to China in, in 1924, Um, to to the later periods, especially in the 1950s. So one was to go beyond this idea of Pan-Nationism that Okakura uh, created, started in the early 20th century, but also to move beyond the way of looking at China-India connections um, from uh, the period of Opium Wars and and beyond. So those were the reasons um, that we wanted to use that term. Uh, and, and many of the chapters have looked at these both aspects uh, of, of moving beyond Pan-Asianism. At the same time, we also discuss this idea of, of Panationism. So Tagore is part of the discussion. Binoy Kumar Shorkar, uh, who is uh, uh, who was an Indian intellectual living in Shanghai in 1916. Uh, but other figures uh, also show up. Chang Yan, as Brian was talking about, is a major figure. In this concept of pan-Asianism, so uh, we talk about pan-Asianism, but we also move uh, beyond pan-Asianism, both with regard to the content uh, as well as with regard to the method of doing China-India connections or, or comparisons.
1: Thank you, Professor. Yeah, indeed, this um, the chapters in this edit volume definitely goes beyond discussing um, just China and India, and especially painting their relationships um, in these kind of friendly solidarities. Um, But it also goes beyond um, the use of artificial temporalities, right? Like you said, moving beyond the the era of the opium war or the time surrounding the opium war. Um, So in other words, this volume really kind of questions the use of um, these temporalities, but also nation-state frameworks, Um, So can you maybe tell us more about these kind of methodological approaches and choices? Um, How would they help us to grasp or contextualize the relationship between India and China um, better in a more effective way?
0: We emphasize conventional periodization that focuses on key milestones, such as the founding of the Republic of India in uh, 1947 and the People's Republic of China in 1949, because the emergence of these two nation-states uh, pertains to only part of uh, China-India interactions. Um, some aspects of China-India interactions, connections such as intelligence gathering in the border town uh, kalimpong uh, which I'm sure uh, Tansian will talk more about later on, and the aspirations of uh, Chinese and Indian uh, shipping entrepreneurs can only be put to, to live with the suspend, these sort of state-centric temporal divisions. And of course, uh, Tan Sen mentioned the subalterns and these uh, subalterns uh, m- might not uh, have, uh, have very much to do with 1947 and 1949. Uh, so this is one reason why we uh, want to de-emphasize uh, these milestones. But the other reason why we want to uh, de emphasize this uh, uh, sort of dates, prioritization, as the uh, Ghana also mentioned just then, is that we want to move beyond the nation states because uh, China India connections are part of regional and global trends that go beyond sort of governmental or state to state relations. Um, the circulation of people, ideas, capital, and imagery is often confounded to geopolitical boundaries. Uh, imperialist projects and anti-imperialist or national movements, and indeed uh, capitalism uh, transcended national boundaries and uh, were sort of global ventures. Um, this is particularly true. Uh, we argue we argue in the colonial period or the European period in China or late Qing period in China, when uh, due to various reasons. Uh, and most of all, uh, in the, the weakest uh sometimes boundaries were much more porous than they are today.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And introduction of the edit volume kind of mentions that um, some of these chapters in the book actually challenges um, categories and frameworks forged in the Cold War and addresses problems or limitations of area studies. And this is also something that Professor Sen Um, Your article, um, China-India Studies, Emergence, Development, and State of the Field, um, recently published in the Journal of Asian Studies, talks about um, that we need a kind of new framework uh, to analyze the complex connections and the pertinent comparisons between China and India. Um, So the introduction of the edit volume then kind of suggests or mentions um, two scholars who have um, suggested the use of India and China as methods to study these two cultures, civilizations, and nations um, to challenge these Cold War categories. So, Taiwanese scholar Chen Guan Singh, for example, and the Japanese scholar Mizuguchi Yuzo have both um, suggested India China as method. Um, so, in the edit volume, then, how are the scholars um, also engaging with this? Um, India, China as a method. Do they consider this as a uh, approach to take in future studies?
2: So the the article that you mentioned in uh, Journal of Asian Studies uh, uh, is a state of field article, which also looks at the methods that have been used to study China-India connections or comparisons, uh, and the and the motivation to write that article actually came during the process of doing. Uh, research for beyond Pan-Nationism book and writing the introduction um, there seemed to be something missing uh, uh, that I thought should be put in writing that uh, needs to be done by future scholars um, and and so the method was one key aspect um, uh, as I argue in that uh, Journal of Asian Studies article that uh, this field might have started in, in the 19th century but uh, the method of doing China-India comparison of connections really has not been discussed. And, and the introduction to ba- beyond Pan-Nationism started uh, that discourse and, and the article then in General Facial Studies uh, took it forward. Uh, and, and, and I'll just mention before I, I answer your question um, that we are actually doing a collection of articles where people uh, studying China-India, either connections or comparisons, are, are going to tell us about the methods they are using. So th- this is an ongoing process to talk about uh, the methods of doing China-India connections. So I would say uh, the introduction to uh, this volume Beyond Panationism was a start. Uh, and and we started by looking at what people had already done. Uh, uh, and, and this is where uh, uh, actually, uh, in, in uh, Viran Murthy's chapter, uh, he talks about Takeuchi Yoshimi's uh, uh, initial idea about uh, Asia's method. Uh, and I think people would know that n- not only be, uh, this idea of Pan-Asianism, but uh, this idea about Asia uh, and what it was, how Japan was connected to Asia, was, was a huge discourse that continued even after the Second World War uh, and and so this idea about looking at Asia as this not not just a geographical entity, but uh, uh, common issues between Asia and other parts uh, of of the world, uh, which I would say uh, what Takeuchi was was perhaps referring to, uh, uh, is now called Global Asia. Uh, and I think uh, Global Asia. When I I run a center called Center for Global Asia. Is not a constraint of Asia through the geography that we know of, but finding Asia in different parts of the world. So, Americas is quite important. Uh, There were lots of Asian migrants who moved to the US, but also South America, uh, Europe. uh, That's what global Asia is, how global Asia is connected. Uh, through Asia as a, as a continent but um, uh, it's, it's a broader issue and and that's what I think Takeuchi was was uh, emphasizing uh, when he was talking about Asia's method uh, and, and and certainly as as you pointed out uh, uh, mizoguchi yozo uh, was looking at not Asia in particular uh, uh, he was looking at China as method uh and, and, and I would say this is also part of the Japanese scholarship on China, and and they have been doing and writing um, uh, on China from, from very early on. In fact, uh, those of us who do China studies in the U.S., I have to look at the scholarship of the Japanese scho- uh, scholars. I don't know if you do that at USB, uh, but at at UPenn, I had to do two years of Japanese language uh, just because uh, we had to read what the Japanese scholars had written about the Tang and Song dynasties. Um, but for uh, Mizoguchi, I, I think uh, the idea of of China as method uh, was also cautioning the the. Cold world narrative or or the colonial narrative um, that we can look at Asia or parts of Asia through uh, a perspective that comes from within Asia. Uh, And that's what I think Chinguani Singh also uh, brings in and he moves uh, to India as as method. His argument was uh, if you are really going to look at China and study China, can we use India as a method? Uh, So this was a different take uh, that he was pointing across. And I think uh, this is an idea that not many people in in, uh, in China have really looked at. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I would suggest uh, to scholars who are doing India and, and China to look at these two arguments, uh, one by Mizoguchi and the other by Guan Singh to see if we can study China using India as a method and, and then uh, look at China using India as a method. There's there's uh, things to be seen from that kind of a non-Western, uh, non-colonial, non-Cold War perspective. Uh, but this is uh, not India-China as as method. Uh, I think that's why we have in the introduction China slash India as method, not China hyphen. Uh, india as as method um, in my article i talk about uh china hyphen india as as method um and 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 there uh, i think the other scholars have have contributed to those ideas uh, maybe at some point we'll will get to that uh, which is not covered in this volume uh, but peter vanderweer's uh, study of china india as as method or pasanjit dwara's uh china india as as uh, uh convergence um, that happens. So those are uh, some things that are in the article. But so the the introduction to this volume was the first step to start a discourse on that. And not everybody in the volume actually addresses this, but it comes out uh, in different ways. Um, and I thought uh, Brian and I should emphasize that uh, in the introduction. Uh, I don't know if Brian wants to add anything to this discourse.
0: Um, not at this point.
1: Thank you. Yeah, um, this really reminded me of a, another book that I've been reading recently, um, The Inheritance of Loss by Yukiko Koga. Um, and so in the book, she kind of uses this idea of the two mirrors kind of facing each other, the Kagami Awase. Like, so when two mirrors face each other, you get to see um, both, right? You can see sort of this infinite reflection of each other. You can also see each other's back. Um, so I think this India-slash-China method is a very powerful kind of methodology to really explore both regions in ways that um, is definitely not possible through this Cold War practice of, of area studies.
2: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think that's, that's a very uh, interesting metaphor uh, because there are so many interesting uh, common issues between China and India historically and even contemporary uh, that you can actually do this kinds of study without bringing in the Western examples. Um, and uh, I think that's not been really outlined. Maybe people do it, but they don't uh, examine the methods of, of doing that. Uh, so I, I think that's, that's a very interesting for holding the mirror to each other and, and looking at and studying each other is, is quite, quite important.
1: Yeah. Um, So I guess part one and part two um, of the edit volume kind of talks about this, right? So we're holding the two mirrors, India, China, against each other. So part one of the volume actually features um, three essays that explore how Chinese writers engage with different meanings of India. So Adira Mangalagiri discusses the Indian policeman in Chinese literature. Gao Gvili exposes Xu Dishan's uh, China-India literary imagination. And Viren Murthy delves into Zhang Taiyan's critiques of colonialism. Um, So how is India portrayed and understood in these Chinese writings? What do these kind of portrayals tell us about the imaginations of India-China connectivity through um, Chinese writers' eyes?
0: Um, So so part one of the volume complicates dominant thinking on uh, Chinese images of India in the late Qing Republican period So we are long under the impression that India did not feature in Chinese writings very much, or that if it did, uh, Indians sort of features as sort of the abject colonized slaves, or the willing accomplices of British colonizers. So India, as a society and nation, uh, was vanquished, uh, or something that uh, China must overcome in order to become a modern nation. Um, so this is the exact opposite to what uh, Tan Sen was talking about as using um, India or China's method. So this is more of this sort of uh, nationalist uh, modernization theories type of uh, uh, linearity uh, that uh, we assume uh, uh, sort of uh, dominates Chinese imaginations of India. Um, so this uh, the three chapters in uh, this part uh, tries to complicate this stereotype. Um, So Adira's uh, examination of the Indian policemen in Chinese literary writings points to instances where Chinese Indian policemen uh, stationed in Shanghai, those supposedly uh, obedient obedient dogs of imperialism occurring revolutionary and anti-colonial consciousness. Um, The Indian policeman appears as a more complicated figure, who straddled between colonial sort of slave mentality and someone with whom uh, the Chinese could join together in shared anti-colonial aspirations. Uh, Gao's chapter focuses on the short fiction writer whom uh, Sanskrit and religion scholar Shidishan. Uh, Shidishan employs myths in Indian literature to question imperialist epistemology. He drew on uh, circularity in myths to interrogate the, the uh, tele- teleology of historical process, a notion that has swayed uh, among uh, modernizers in China and elsewhere. Viva uh, Merti's readings of Jiang Taiyan, a very complicated anti-Qing activist, reveals that Jiang uh, Taiyan uh, liberated uh, India in his critique of in- linear history. Um, so together, the three chapters help us uh, comprehend the many ways in which India was depicted in the uh, Chinese uh, intellectual world. Uh, India represented ambiguity, opportunity, and it also echoes the uh, aspect uh, part of our discussion just then. Um, Chinese intellectuals using Indian experiences to rethink capitalist modernity and mainstream uh, to the Chinese attachment uh, to uh, capitalist uh, modernization.
1: Thank you. Thank you for um, really going into the hearts of each of these three um, chapters. And part two of the volume actually focuses on the reverse, right? How China was represented in Indian writings and also vice versa. So Zhang Ku's chapter, for example, looks at Chinese travel writings on India um, in the late Qing, Kamau Shio and Anand Yang's chapters then examine popular perceptions of China written in Hindi, Bengali, and Urdu. Um, so how is China represented in these Indian writings now? Do they also adopt this kind of linear temporality? What are some of the commonalities and differences between seeing um, the Indian-China connection through Chinese or Indian lenses or gazes now?
2: Um so before uh, I, I move to the, the second section, I, I just wanted to uh, uh, to basically point out uh, that uh, the first section, the, the authors of the three chapters were not the core members uh, of our project when we started. Uh, and so we brought them in uh, to really look at some of the issues that we thought, as Brian had earlier pointed out, um, was to go beyond what we were doing, uh, and and that's why the first section is called epistemological interventions. So uh, so uh, Adhira Gal and and uh, Viren basically brought in uh, perspective that we were not covering initially. So that was uh, the intention of bringing three scholars who were not really focusing on archival material, and they were looking at religion and literature. So uh, that's uh, the highlight of of the first section as well. Uh, The second section, the the contributors to the second uh, section, which is called Encounters and Images. uh, They they were originally the the core members of the research project. uh, And the idea was uh, to look at the archival and the library materials uh, on China-India connections uh, but also look at some of these texts that had not been studied. So um, Chankar's uh, 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 essay looks at uh, Kang yowe who was uh, in India uh, in Darjeeling and writing about about India uh, and what he saw in India. But at the same time, what he was doing was reflecting on the situation uh, in China, uh, and this is after uh, his reform movement had had failed and and was uh, India, a method for for China or not was uh, the discourse that Kang Yo was way was actually having with his student Liang Chi-chao. Uh, so um, uh, one of the things that Chankar looks at uh, is not only Kang Yo-wei, but some other writers uh, who visited uh, India in the late nineteenth uh, century, and 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 this these writings are actually quite important to understand the revival of. India-China connections through the visits of people. Uh, and so we have a number of Chinese uh, who are visiting India after the opium wars to see the situation and learn from India uh, whether or not India, British India is a threat uh, to the Qing um, or not. So what, what Chanka does is not only look at these sources, but uh, within these sources, look at how uh, China is being thought about by looking at at, at India. And, and, and I would say Chen Guangxing would be really happy to see this kind of a method. Uh, and although Changkhe does not really address uh, Chen Xing, but he is actually working on India as a method uh, by looking at Chinese writings uh, on, on India. Um, the other two scholars uh, here, Kamal Shil and Anand Yang, have been for a number of years now looking at uh, Indian writings uh, on, on China. Uh, and and this, again, was another emphasis of our research project is to look and bring out vernacular language material in Indian writings on China. And and so uh, they look at Hindi uh, uh, writings on China, but going beyond Hindi, Bengali as well. Uh, so starting from the early 20th century, there were lots of Indian writings in vernacular languages, especially Hindi and, and Bengali. Uh, and and the two chapters by Kamashil and Anand uh, Young actually look at those uh, perceptions and views uh, about China within these kinds of writings. So we we get a fascinating array of of images um, of China in these Indian writings. So one of the uh, key figures is the so-called uh, Subaltern um, uh, soldier from from India who goes. Uh, to China and, and fights on behalf of the British army against the boxers. Uh, and, and he writes about his views about colonialism both in India and China. And I would say this is one of the early comparisons uh, of India-China uh, and, and perhaps India-China as a method that that uh, he is using. Um, uh, and, and then um, what Kamal Shiel does is he looks at some of the uh, libraries in India which also have writings on China uh, from the early 20th century, and and he focuses uh, on on them. So what what this section really does is to highlight some of the sources that have not been used uh, in India-China connections, uh, but also look at non-state perceptions uh, of India and China and self-perceptions of uh, of a region by people who are visiting each other. uh, these are t- studies of travelogues. These are studies of perceptions. These are uh, perhaps the beginning of, of China, India as, as method by people who are not interested uh, in the method parts. But uh, I think this is uh, the key aspect of uh, the second section of the volume.
1: Thank you. Yeah, and writings in these Indian uh, languages um, about China, are they also writing in this kind of linear temporality?
0: I, I think I think it, 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 in Kammer's and Anan Yang's uh, uh, chapters, they um, have shown that these important writings somehow they sort of question uh, the sort of this triumphalism colonial triumphalism uh, narrative discourse that you see in some of these sort of uh, British uh, writings on Boxer's Rebellion or uh, the Sacking of Beijing. Um, so in, in this sense, of they, they offer a counterpoint to uh, this imperial historiography.
1: Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, and now let's jump to part three of the volume. Um, so here we see how relations between India and China facilitated by governmental, intellectual and religious networks um, were actually carried out on the ground at the turn of the 20th century. So, for example, Yu Ting Li's chapter looks into a conversation between the Chinese philosopher Feng Yolan and the philosopher-poet uh, Rabindranath Tagore. And Intel's chapter, investigates the evangelical Sing Sabah movement in Hong Kong and how it carries out there. Janice Hu Jujuan um, explores wartime Chinese-Islamic diplomatic missions across the Indian Ocean and Dr. Tui, your chapter here um, charts the career of Tagore's Chinese protege Tan Yun Shan and his building of this um, sino-Indian cultural studies in India. Um, so, what happens when these ideas of solidarity, such as pan-Asianism, or um, carried out in concrete practices?
0: So, um, as you as you said, this uh, part focuses on concrete practices uh, practices of uh, encounters. So, in the previous uh, two parts, uh, we look mostly on uh, images, um, but it's all, only in uh, part three, we look into uh, specific cases of encounters. Um, so Yuting Li uh, delves into a conversation between De young Feng yulan who uh, will eventually become a leading philosopher in modern China, and Tagore, uh, when Feng was still a student at Columbia University in New York. Um, so this the conversation led Yu Ting Li to review that uh, understanding understanding of Tagore in, in China uh, was limited, and this limitations uh, were, was the dislimitation was a result of uh, the, the very sort of famed or infamous 1924 uh, visit that uh, Tagore, uh gave went to China and it was then that the debate about the Tagore was set uh, and whether he was, a, whether we celebrate or reject him as a defender of Western civilization. Um, so Uteni's, by looking into earlier conversation, uh, wanted uh, to show another aspect of the Tagore that um, somehow uh, eludes uh, much of our discussion of the Tagore, particularly in the Chinese speaking world. So Taoyin homes into what for me a familiar but also unfamiliar site, uh, the Sikh temple in Hong Kong. Um, so Taoyin, that's how the Sikh diaspora, uh, and in particular the Singh Sabha movement, it drew on both imperialist and anti imperialist networks uh, to raise funds and to establish bases offshore. Um, Genesis chapter questions the Chinese Islamic Goodwill mission's um, Chinese nation's credentials by highlighting the transnational and heterogeneous connections across the Islamic world. She argues that the Second World War really strengthened the cosmopolitan networks of um, Chinese Muslims, uh, while one might think that national wars would have hardened national identities. Um, so this section uh, named cultures and mediators discuss figures and encounters episodes that cannot be easily defined based on categories that we take for granted today based on um, so these uh, na- national histories.
1: Thank you. That's definitely something that's very important that's coming through um, in this section and in these chapters. And Dr. Tui, your chapter entitled uh, "When Culture Meets State Diplomacy: The Case of China Bavana" um, traces the career of this really fascinating Chinese scholar Tan Yunshan. Um, but it also discusses China Bhavana and this institution of Chinese studies founded in Shantiki Katan that was uh, inaugurated as a symbol of living contact between China and India. Um, there's something very interesting about this place too, um, so please tell us more about this Chinese hall and what were the cultural promises it held and also the geopolitical challenges it had to negotiate.
0: Um- Shina Bavana and Tan Shan were most intriguing entities. Um, Tan Shan spent his earlier days in Malaya before being recruited to serve at uh, I mean the institution that the Tekoa found. Vishra uh, was uh, not your typical university, even though uh, today is now recognized by the Indian state as one of the major universities. Um, it prides itself in not having sort of classrooms in concrete buildings and formal formal, uh, curricula. Um, So that's, uh, Tagore envisioned this place as the uh, sort of this opposite of what you might find um, in Calcutta or or Delhi, uh, formal sort of urban based universities, uh, but rather institutions in a rural uh, uh, Bengal. so uh, Tan Yunshan was asked by Teko to establish a Chinese studies uh, institution, institute at Uh, uh Tan Yunshan's strength uh, was in his connections with elite uh, communities among the uh, Southeast Asian or Nanyang Chinese and uh, the Chinese mainland. Shina uh, Bavana Chinese Hall, which he founded, was mostly a result of uh, Chinese official uh, the nationalist government funding. Um, he enjoyed cordial uh, relationships with uh, the Indian National Congress, which allowed him to mediate between uh, the nationalist government in China, Nanjing, and the Indian National Congress, which was then still fighting against British colonialism.
1: So, in the last section of the volume entitled "Building and Challenging Imperial Networks." Now we see how India-China ties not only utilized and challenged imperial networks and later capitalist nation-state system, but also enforced them in many ways. Um, So Madhavi Tampi's chapter now looks at Indian activists in Chinese treaty ports and cities. Um, Liao essay, for example, reveals the relationship between the nationalist Chinese government and India during World War II. And Reinhardt's um, chapter traces the shipping networks that linked India and China. Professor Sen, your chapter here then wraps up the section with a really interesting paper on intelligence gathering in Kalingpong. Um, So how did individuals now involved in India-China connections build upon existing imperial and capitalist networks? And how did they also challenge these networks through their own movements?
2: So uh, um, this uh, section had, uh, let's say, three objectives. Uh, The first thing with the overall objective of the volume uh, to introduce new sources uh, for studying China-India connections. Uh, And you'll notice uh, that we are all uh, using archival material uh, in all the four chapters here. Uh, The second uh, uh, objective was to... uh, Go beyond uh, the temporal frameworks that have been used. So we did not stop with either 47 or 49. My chapter goes all the way to 1960s. So questioning that time frame that we were talking about initially. Uh, and the third objective of this section was to actually talk about uh, non-state uh, actors, uh, even though they were using the state networks. Um, and so again, the emphasis uh, going beyond the nation-state framework. So these were the three uh, objectives of of this uh, section. Um, So Madhvi, who has actually worked on uh, on, uh, the National uh, Archives in India a lot, I mean, she has collected a lot of information uh, about um, the connections between China and India during the colonial period, uh, the late 19th century, uh, in particular, looks at Uh, this group of uh, indian um, diasporic uh, communities uh, in china it wasn't very large uh, compared to the chinese community in india Um, but they were uh, uh, participants in this anti-colonial movement they were key members of uh, anti-colonial movement uh, that was based outside india so the gather party for example connections to northern america through shanghai Uh, was one of these key uh, groups of people uh, fighting the British colonial Um, uh, and and then the later, uh, the very famous, uh, especially for people in eastern part of India, uh, Netaji Subhas Chandra Bose, who establishes this anti-British colonial movement in Singapore, uh, also had representatives in China. So Mathieu is basically looking at uh, these anti-colonial people uh, based in China uh, using the colonial networks to fight against the colonial government in India. So that's uh, her chapter, again, bringing uh, to four some of the important sources uh, on, on these uh, anti-colonial connections between China and India. Um, Sho uh, also does something uh, similar using uh, sources from Taiwanese archives. Uh, and and look at looks at the connections between the Kuomintang and the Indian nationalist movement. Uh, at the same time, as Chiang Kai Shek is talking to the British leaders in in India, uh, and then one of the figures uh, that she talks about, and this was uh, Brian's uh, a, a book about uh, Tejital, um having uh, discoursed with uh, the Indian nationalist uh, leaders, uh, for example Nehru. Uh, and and so that connection underneath the state to state relations is the fascinating aspect of Winchell's, uh paper here uh, uh, and and Rein uh, and and reinhard uh, uh, it's not about connections, but it's about comparisons uh, essentially between uh two uh, uh, shipping magnets, you can say uh, uh very nationalist uh, shipping magnets who are creating um, their own uh, nationalist uh, entrepreneurship uh, using the pre-existing mostly British created shipping networks uh, and and how they deal with these uh, changes that happens uh, during the colonial period and during the uh, decolonization period uh, is a fascinating uh, uh, study of these two shipping nationalists uh, emerging in India and, and, and China. Uh, my own um, uh, uh, essay here looks at uh, archival material on uh, the intelligence network that existed in a very small uh, town uh, in, in north, uh, northern Bengal called Kalingpong. Uh, and again, uh, the emphasis was to go beyond the established cities and look at other towns, which are uh, important uh, also for China-India connections because Kalingpong was uh, linked to Tibet. Um, and, and that is the reason why it emerged as uh, a key site for uh, spying activities. And, and that's uh, that's what I focus uh, on uh, in my chapter, looking at, again, people who are not usually covered in the study of China-India connections.
1: Thank you. Yes, indeed. Um, I like how in your chapter, you situate not only kind of geographically into this area that's often kind of overlooked, but also temporally, right? You're kind of looking into the post-1949, 1945 moment into the 1960s and looks at how, you know, um, imperialist um, connections, but also um, other kinds of political forces have this kind of delayed effect on certain regions. Um, So speaking of archives and the use of um, really interesting materials, Um, Your chapter actually uses and analyzes confidential reports produced by the colonial and post-colonial intelligence branch of West Bengal. um, In your chapter entitled The Chinese Intrigue in Klingpong Intelligence Gathering and the Spice in a Contact Zone. So what did you find in these confidential reports about espionage in the region?
2: So uh, one of the objectives of this chapter was to point out uh, the nature of our archival material that we were using. uh, And and so in the chapter, I talk about how these archival files that are uh, now at the West Bengal State Archives came about, how they were compiled, who were the people composing it, and how the British colonial government uh, were really uh, uh, very much concerned about foreigners Uh, especially Chinese uh, in in Bengal, where a diasporic community of the Chinese had been established in the 18th century. So there are about 200 files uh, compiled by the Intelligence Bureau uh, of the colonial British government that continued after 1947 by the uh, Indian Intelligence Branch, also uh, working out of, of Calcutta. So as far as sources are concerned, these are really fascinating sources with regard to the Chinese presence in uh, India, uh, particularly Bengal, but extends to other parts of India as well. Uh, so just uh, through these files, we can see a number of aspects of how the, the, uh, the British colonial government and then the Indian independent government perceived Uh, the connections to China. Uh, This is usually not portrayed in in other sources. So, as far as sources are concerned, uh, uh, these files give us a very interesting perspective uh, of the Chinese government, uh, both uh, the Republican government and then the communist government, and that was one of the reasons to go beyond uh, 1947 and, and look at how China is perceived by the intelligence people, which is very different from what uh, the government was saying uh, uh, either before or after 1947. Um, so what, what I found here were uh, records of different communities, uh, uh, Chinese communities settled in different parts of Bengal. Uh, and I picked uh, Kalingpong because it gave us a sense of how um, the identities of the Chinese migrant groups changed before and after 1947, when the idea of who is a citizen of India came about. Uh, and, and in that context, these uh, diasporic communities uh, and people belonging to these diasporic communities were mostly traders doing business uh, or, or laborers working in the docks in, in Calcutta. Um, were then trying to adjust to the, the idea about where they belonged, whether they were Chinese or were, were they Indians. Uh, the Indian state, the Indian independent state had a view about about them. Uh, they were perceived as Chinese. And then initially until 1950s, late 1950s, uh, that was not a major concern uh, whether or not they had citizenship or not. But when the relations between the PRC and, and the Indian uh, government started deteriorating, uh, these people, these Chinese living in Kalingpong were then thought of as spies. Um, many of them uh, were perhaps not engaged in spying activities and they are conflicting records from these files that would indicate that some of the informants uh, were insisting that uh, some of these Chinese were spies, others were saying, no, 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 they were not spies. So you see these conflicting ideas about uh, the spying networks. At the same time, we know uh, from other sources, uh, especially Chinese sources uh, in, uh, in the mainland and Taiwan, that yes, indeed, some of them were providing uh, uh, intelligent information to the Chinese government. So one of the arguments I also wanted to make uh, in this chapter was that archival research should not just focus on one set of archival Uh, uh, library, but also compare it to the other archival material. And then in this case, we have a lot of information, not only from Calcutta, the West Bengal State Archives, but also the Taiwanese archive and and the Nanjing archives. So a comparison of these three archival sources would really tell us uh, the extensive network of spies uh, and the counterintelligence activity of, of different governments. Uh, to stop that from happening. So that was, I think, one of the uh, final say or objective of this volume is to to emphasize that, okay, you bring out new sources, but don't stick to one set set of sources. Uh, See if you can find other sources that are either uh, uh, comparable or contradictory to what you are finding in one library or one archives.
1: Thank you. Yes, that's definitely something that um, all scholars nowadays um, actually have the privilege of doing, right? We have um, a lot more access to different kinds of archives, especially through digital means. So this is, um, you know, indeed even more uh, necessary than ever um, to consider multiple archives in our work. Um, so Professor Prasenjit Drara actually concludes um, the chapter, uh, concludes the whole edit volume um, in the epilogue chapter, um, and here in this last chapter of the book, he sees how many of the chapters in this volume actually can be viewed through this methodological lens of convergent comparison, um, this idea that he also recently wrote about um, in the November 2020 issue of Asian Journal of Asian Studies in his presidential address. Um, and this concept is also based on this idea that histories are circulatory and they confound linear national processes. Um, so please explain this idea of convergence comparison a bit more for us, especially how our authors in the Edda volume can engage with this idea. Um, and also, how do you see it as a useful tool to study not only China-India connections, but also other transnational relations?
0: Uh, So Professor Duara presents a methodological angle through which we can understand India-China connectivity. Uh, I think it's better to read directly from him uh, in the epilogue. Um, So I quote the concept, the concept being convergent comparisons. It's based on the idea that histories are circulatory and not necessarily shaped by linear national processes. The method suggests that Although there might be many different factors, institutions in different societies, they can often be understood comparatively through their responses to the common factors that impacts them. So, um, Professor Duara argues that we should not treat. Uh, sorry, Professor Duara argues that we should treat responses of individuals in forces not only in in China and India, but I think perhaps in different uh, societies uh, to. Uh, the shared conditions such as modern imperialism um, and uh, foreign monopoly of economic and political powers as the basis of comparisons. Um, So he uh, stressed that figures back then, um, like the uh, two shipping magnets uh, that uh, uh, Ben Reinhardt studies, uh, might not have uh, discerned the common uh, conditions shared by these uh, different communities, societies, but we scholars would risk neglecting them if we confined ourselves to national, sorry, to to national or even nationalist histories. If
2: I could add, uh, add a little bit on this, because you you're working on transregional, transnational aspects. Uh, so Prasenjit's idea is actually quite important to do uh, transregional and and going again beyond Asia. I think that's why the idea is important because it it challenges this notion that transregional is always unidirectional from point A to B. Uh, And and, and his idea of, of circulation or circulatory is things, if they move from A to B, can also come back to A. Uh, and and uh, so th- this is a circulation that things don't stop and other, other scholars have, have written about that. Uh, it's not point A to B, but also to C and, and back to A. And, and this, uh, in my case, uh, when I look at Buddhism, uh, and, and the, and the long duration transmission of Buddhism, you can see that happening uh, not just between India and China, but Japan as well. And you mentioned Mongolia. So there's a whole lot of uh, multiple directional circulation of ideas. Uh, and, and as you know, ideas then get transformed uh, and, and sent back to the points of origin. I think that is the larger uh, uh, argument that Prasenji is making. Things don't stop they continue moving uh, and and, and uh, it's our duty to look at that continued movement uh, to really understand the trans connections uh, and, and circulations. And I think the emphasis on circulation is, is something that he is also trying to make.
1: Thank you, thank you. I think this is a great place to end our conversation uh, for today. Thank you so much for taking up so much of your time to speak to us. But we do have one last question for the both of you. Um, can you maybe share with us some of the current projects that you're working on, and also what would be one new book that you would recommend to our listeners?
0: Okay, so we we are so so now I'm working on two two projects. One um, is on how uh, fellow Asians outside of China in through in the British Empire, this crumbling British Empire in the fifties, debated the advent of the People's Republic of China. Um, so. Uh, the figures I'm looking at include uh, includes uh, Indian visitors uh, to China in the early 50s, and Christians who wrestled with the idea uh, of a communist-run uh, China as their neighbor. So it's, uh, I'm now writing a uh, paper on the Hong Kong, the, the Anglican Bishop of Hong Kong, uh, Ronald Hall uh, who developed a very very favourable view of the PRC and used this particular view of PRC to critique the colonial society of Hong Kong. Um, The other project that I'm working on, I think Tan Sen will talk more about later on, is um, uh, what we have assembled uh, a group of scholars to look at uh, the uh, papers that uh, the the, the Nehru family disclosed of the first prime minister of uh, the Republic of India, and that they... Uh, we try to uh, see what we can do with these papers through our own disciplinary and scholarly uh, concerns. Um, Well, as for the book that uh, I might recommend, I'm now reading uh, Ken Mishra's uh, Planned Panetics Liberals, Race and Empire. It's not obviously not a research monograph, uh, but it does uh, point to to many many of the issues and predictions that we face in this sort of crazy age um, in a tone and language that most academics would rather not imitate.
2: So, uh, yeah, so I'll start with um, uh, the project that Brian mentioned. So one of the outcome of uh, this Beyond Panationism volume was to continue working on archives. And then as we were finishing um, this book project, uh, uh, the archives that Brian was mentioning, uh, the na- post-1947, uh, papers of, of the first prime minister of India were were declassified. And that provides a wealth of information about what happened in the 1950s uh, between China and India. Uh, and we are using the methods that we used for the Beyond pan volume is to look at the 1950s from different disciplinary perspectives and not just uh, on the international relations aspect of it. Uh, and that gives us uh, various ways of looking at uh, China-India connections in the 1950s, uh, exchange of cultural delegations, um, various kinds of perceptions and encounters. So many of the things we did, mostly for the pre-1940s period in the Beyond pan and volume, we are using that to study 1950s uh, China-India connection. Uh, My own uh, writing now, is on uh, the invention of this term, Maritime Silk Road. Um, I've been interested in the Indian Ocean connections for some time, uh, and and also this term, uh, the Maritime Silk Road, a lot has been written about Silk Road as a term, but uh, who invented uh, this term Maritime Silk Road and how it was used uh, in the People's Republic of China and, and its association with The developments in the PRC is something uh, I'm I'm now working on. Um, uh, The book uh, that I would uh, recommend uh, is actually uh, a travelogue uh, kind of a thing uh, written by a very famous uh, uh, historian of of India. Uh, Her name is Romila Thapar. Um, And and she has done a tremendous work uh, on on early Indian history. Uh, But recently, just a couple of months back, uh, she wrote a book uh, on uh, her travels in uh, China in 1957. Uh, She went to uh, Tunhuang uh, uh, to work on the paintings there. Uh, And this book is called Gazing Eastwards. um, And the subtitle is Of Buddhist Monks and Revolutionaries in, in China. Uh, so this is a fascinating take uh, on, on China in the 1950s by this very famous uh, Indian historian working on uh, the Buddhist uh, connections between China and India. And I would say this is uh, quite an easy easy read, but it gives lots of insights uh, into the scholarship on Buddhism, uh, China-India connection, uh, and, and how an Indian uh, perceives China in the 1950s.
1: Wow, thank you. This is definitely on my uh, reading list now. (laughs) Thank you so much for recommending this. And Dr. Tsui, also thank you for recommending your book. And um, again, I have to really um, say that, you know, I really appreciate both of you taking the time to speak with us about this really wonderful edit volume. Congratulations, by the way.
2: And thank you for organizing this, Dagana. And and, uh, best of luck with your studies.
1: Thank you so much. All right. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.